I believe this is uh, session number four in uh, parenting, and I think I've got two more. One more for sure, maybe two more. So it'll be a six-part series. I'd just like to uh, pray before we dive in uh, for today's message. Lord, we uh, really appreciate the wisdom that you have through the scriptures and how to raise our kids, uh, all the way from infancy up to the teenage years when they leave home. And every week I realize that certain sections of the, the messages, Lord, are more pertain to kids they are young, and some of it might pertain to kids that are older, but Lord, I pray as we walk through that everyone knows your ways more for how to raise our kids. And we are thankful for the privilege of raising kids. Um, I always think about my own life, Lord, and I know the two things that have really challenged me in the area of selfishness have been marriage and children. Those two things, Lord, you don't realize how many problems you have, <laughs> how much the cross means to, to us once we uh, wrestle through the selfishness we have in marriage and raising our kids, Lord, with time and love and all the different issues we face. So um, I'm grateful for, for children for many reasons, and one of them is it's helped me realize even my own life where I need to be more self-sacrificial. I pray, God, that uh, as we sp spend time in Proverbs and in Samuel today, that uh, we are uh, convinced of the truth from your word and that your spirit does a work in us. We pray this in the name of the Lord. Amen. All right, last week was a, a, a fun time with you guys discussing the, the pros and cons that would come out of disciplining our children. We talked about the, the negative fruit that the Proverbs promised if we didn't, and we talked about the positive fruit that would come out if we did. And again, Proverbs is generally a wisdom literature. It's not a guarantee, like a 100% guarantee promise, but it's ba God is basically saying to the Proverbs, if you follow this wisdom, life generally works this way for you. So everything from, you know, uh, not just parenting, but finances, uh, the t power of the tongue, all these types of things are in Proverbs discussing um, what could be the potential outcome or the likely outcome if we go God's way and not go God's way. So just in refresher, um, we did step four, understanding that discipline or removing foolishness comes with promises from God, which was, in other words, saying character development. We talked about bringing wisdom, bringing delight to parents, bringing godly virtue and rescue. Then we talked about this fifth step, that understanding that lack of discipline or allowing foolishness comes with promises from God. Uh, also character development. And we went through ten uh, potentials uh, that will come out in our children. And I won't review them now because we did them last week. So today, we're going to talk about reasons why parents would not discipline their children. So we, if God promises these wonderful things for us, if, if we do, and he promises um, potentially these negative consequences if we don't, then why in the heck wouldn't we do it if we know that we have so much to gain relationally with our children and in their relationship to God? So we're going to discuss those now. And I have nine reasons, and we're going to talk about the first one now, and that being convenience. Convenience. And we'll uh, come back to these slides, so don't feel you have to write everything down now and you're going to panic that you won't get them, because I will come back to these uh, more than once. So the first reason would be convenience, why we would discipline our children. 
Isn't it interesting that kids usually disobey at the most opportune times, <laughs> right? Dad has worked all week and he comes home and he's thinking, man, I'm going to stain the deck. I've been waiting for like three months to stain the deck. And he gets all the, all the materials out, gets everything going, all the special, you know, gloves and all the right dirty clothes and everything ready just to get covered in stain. And he's been waiting for months to do this. And just as he's about to start, something happens in the home where the kids outright disobey and you got to jump in and do something. And you stop and think, you've had all this morning to do it, why now? Or mom's just about to get the laundry done. It's been sitting for one week on the floor and it's been folded, put away, and she's been looking forward to getting that out of there because it's an eyesore every time she gets down to the basement or upstairs, wherever you keep it. And just as about, she's going to do this, this quiet time in the family. She's going to start to do the laundry now and get it put away. And right when you go to do it, the kids start fighting. And it's not convenient. <laughs> or the morning of your family vacation. Everything's been going great. You're looking forward to vacation. And bang, kids goof off right when you're about to leave out the door. You're going to church. The best, most holiest day of the week. <laughs> when everything should be just perfect. And on the way to church, that's when the fights break out. Even better, you're, you're going out sliding because it's winter time and it takes, as you know, 35 minutes to get three kids dressed to go outside for tobogganing. And just as about your, to get them all out the door and you finally got the last boots on, there's a, something breaks out and you're like, oh my goodness, I have to do something now or, because if I don't, well, well, that's the thing, we actually don't <laughs> because it is lack of convenience and we let it go, right? So you can just imagine all the, the convenient opportunities that children seem to do it. But the model becomes, um, the model for a parent in this kind of situation becomes, I have the time to deal with this right now, but I can't be bothered dealing with it because I have more important things that need done. And all of us as parents, including myself, can relate to this idea of convenience. They always seem to disobey at the most opportune times, and so we let it go. That's one reason why we would not follow through when God wants us to. The second one would be lack of time. Uh, under, normal, under normal circumstances, the parent is willing to discipline, but for this particular reason, the parent feels they don't have time to deal with it. Uh, we can all relate to these situations. Uh, people are coming over for supper, and so you've got this huge meal, and it's like, you know you've got about 30 minutes till they show up, but you feel like there's 45 minutes of prep to do. So to take care of the children and intervene at that time is going to take five to ten minutes and you're like, I can't afford to lose this time for supper. Uh, same thing, people, you know, preparing for birthdays, um, getting out the door to go to even a Bible study or get, you have a dentist appointment, a massage, whatever it may be, and you are rushing, rushing, rushing and the children start to disobey and so you don't step in because of lack of time. And so these deadlines will, will, will make you prioritize your deadlines as opposed to disciplining your children. So the motto in this situation becomes, since I don't have the time to discipline, I will just let it go this once. <laughs> just this once. But the problem is, most of us as parents are pressed for time, and so it ends up becoming just more than once, if we're honest with ourselves. But here's the irony about this, this situation. Because we don't want to take the time to discipline our children, what happens is we actually don't do it because we want to, quote unquote, save time for the things that we want to do. 
But the problem is because we go and don't do it, it ends up costing us more time down the road in the future because children learn they don't have to listen to mom and dad. So what happens is I don't want to lose my time now in scenario A, so we let it go. But then the problem is in the future, scenario B, C, D, E comes and there's constant disobedience in those areas. And so because of lack of dealing with it, we actually cost ourselves more time in the future and in the long run. Instead of dealing with it now, because that'll actually save you more time in the future. So that's a, it's, a, it's kind of an ironic thing. We don't do it because of time, not realizing that it'll actually save us time as a parent from now until their adulthood, or until when they leave home, I should say. And as you know, in the long run, um, you'll always be putting out fires. And again, putting out fires is not going to be something that's going to allow you for more time to do the things that you desire to do. But the key is in both of these scenarios, we have to remember this, we cannot take a break from being a parent. We can't take a break from being a parent. And I want you to read this from uh, a guy named Ted Tripp. It's a very good quote. He says this, parenting is your primary calling. Parenting will mean that you can't do all the things that you could do otherwise. It will affect your golf handicap. It may mean that your home does not look like a picture from better homes and gardens. It will impact your career and ascent on the corporate ladder. It will alter the kind of friendships you will be able to pursue. It will influence the kind of ministry you will be able to pursue. It will modify the amount of time you will have for bowling, hunting, television, or how many books you read. It will mean that you can develop, you can't develop every interest that comes along. That's a typo. The costs are high. Very good quote and very true. The third reason that we would not discipline our children, even though we understand that positive character development will come out of it, would be the area of manipulation. Actually, I have it backwards. I'll do fear of embarrassment first. <laughs> fear of embarrassment. This is a situation that we all have found ourselves in. We allow disobedience because we don't want to be publicly embarrassed if we do, if we follow through, and we don't want to be exposed as quote-unquote bad parents if we do it. So we don't want anyone to think negatively of us in the public eye, and so therefore we shy away from following through. And we can all relate to these stories and the incidences. Uh, the grocery store. Heaven forbid we do anything in a grocery store because that has got a public, um, that's a public uh, spectacle 101. Maybe you're at a friend's house. You don't want friend A or B or C to think negatively of you. Uh, you're in the church situation here. And so your kids are running around and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. I don't want anyone here to think negatively of me. Um, in our, your own family context, I mean, we've all been raised in different backgrounds. I guarantee you that uh, your parents have strong opinions on, on how children should be raised. Uh, if it conflicts at all with their parenting style, you'll have fear in the midst of your parents of following through. Or maybe it's not your parents, it's grandpa and grandpa. Because maybe parents are on board. But you can see the family context can be often the most paralyzing. Again, so because of fear of embarrassment, we let it go. But here's what's very interesting. 
Proverbs, just like always, the God's word contradicts man's logic. We think that we're going to be embarrassed. We fear embarrassment, so we don't do it. But Proverbs teaches us that if we do don't do it, we are. If we don't do it, we are going to be embarrassed. So he teaches the opposite. Look at Proverbs ten, verse one. And um, hey, Blake, can you read 10, 10 verse one to me? A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Okay, is a, for, a sorrow to his mother. And then Rob, you got your Bible there, 2915. 2915? Yeah. The rod and the, and the rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to them himself brings shame to his mother. All right, so we have words like shame, and does yours say grief? Uh, I think sorrow. Sorrow. Sorrow and, and sorrow and um, shame. So these aren't words of being proud, they're words of embarrassment, <laughs> right? So if, and we can all relate to these things, you're in the public eye, and you don't discipline, so what's the kid do? Acts up, acts up, and all you want to do is crawl on the hole because you want your child to stop. So you start to use verbal kind of languages and cues to make them stop, but that will never make them stop in a public situation, especially when they're young. Eventually your word will hold authority, but you have to train them that your word will hold authority. But in the beginning stages, your word won't hold any authority. So again, we, God says, if you don't discipline, it's going to bring shame and sorrow to you in the public setting. And yet we think the opposite. Again, God's logic and, and um, man's wisdom always typically contradict each other. Another area that we would, uh, would refuse to discipline our children would be the area of because we've been manipulated. They've manipulated us. How would they do that? They would do it through a tantrum. Okay? So you're in, again, a public setting or in your privacy of your home with grandma and grandpa, whatever. And so they throw a tantrum as a way of manipulating you not to do anything. The problem is, is that and so you don't do anything because you don't want to cause a further scene. Because the scene's already embarrassing enough, so why would I get involved? I'm going to make it worse. And so we, we allow the manipulation because the, the child le learns that he, can, he or she can do this without any intervention. Another one is a, another way of manipulation is parents get played against each other by their kids. You know, so uh, child uh, A does something and the parent A goes in, like dad goes in to correct. And then the child goes to mom, and then she like goes against dad, and then the child learns, oh, I can go against mom and dad, and I can get my way depending who I talk to. And so again, the child plays parents against each other, and, um, and usually we cave because we don't want to feel like we've been unloved. So if you, are, if you say no all the time, parent B says yes all the time, then you just feel like you're always the bad parent. So, so you want to cave to your child and start being actually giving in so that you feel like you're the more loved parent. Um, so again, you have to watch out for those types of things. Don't allow your children to play mommy against daddy. Another way of manipulation is silent treatment. Uh, the child will not talk to you. Again, this feels like you, you don't want to discipline in those situations because you feel like the discipline will cause a further relational wedge. The silent treatment is a form of creating a relational wedge between you and the kid. Well, the kid does it intentionally, but you, so you don't want discipline because you're like, I'm already losing the relationship. I don't want a further relationship to be lost. 
And another one would be pouting. So again, same similar thing to silent treatment, where the child pouts as a way of manipulating you to tell you that you're, you're wrong and that you're foolish, and so you allow it to go because you don't want to discipline for a further relational wedge. Finally on this slide, the uh, reason why parents wouldn't discipline is that they, the idea that they've tried it, but it doesn't work mentality. Gone down that path, never got any fruit out of it, so I, I quit. Proverbs 13.24 says the opposite. If you go to um, that passage in 13.24, and Tori, can you read it? Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Careful. Okay, there's... Um, unfortunately, that translation doesn't do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got an NASB here? Evan. Sue? Evan? Well, what was it again? It was 14. 1332. 1332. 1332. 1334. 1324. All right. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Key word there is diligently. So if a, if a parent says, I've tried, it doesn't work, but I already know what's going on. There's two issues. First one is they're not consistent enough. It's consistency and persistency. So diligence means that you have to be constantly on it, on it, on it. It's like anything else in life. If we want to excel in something or make headway, we need to be diligent and consistent. None of our skills or our, our understanding comes through um, one-off chances. And that's unusual. So it takes consistency and diligence. If you're consistent, your child takes you seriously. If you're inconsistent, your child doesn't take you seriously and will quote-unquote take their chances. <laughs> I'll take my chances when we're dad on that command because sometimes it works out well for me, sometimes it doesn't. So I'll, play, I'll just play my cards and if I get uh, a pop on the bum once every ten times, at least I have fun nine times. So I'm going to go for nine of them, right? So again, it's kind of one of those things where if a child takes you seriously, trust me, it will work. But if you're inconsistent, that's why it won't work. But inconsistency actually is very interesting because inconsistency can actually produce insecurity in your child. See, if, if a child doesn't know if your word is trustworthy, because you're on, on one day, off the other, off one day, off the other, and what happens is they become insecure because they never know if mom or dad's word can be trusted. So when it comes to other areas of life, when mom and dad say something, it's like, well, maybe they're right, maybe they're not. Maybe they follow through, maybe they won't. So again, consistency, one of the keys of that is to take your word seriously. Because if you're willing to consistently um, correct like misbehavior, you're also, we will be consistent in terms of your word meaning something. So when you say that you'll do something for them, say like defend them in a, in a, in a school situation or protect them in certain situations, they go, mom and dad's word actually follows through. So I can trust them in other areas of my life. So it's very, very important. Another reason why we would not um, discipline our children is we're afraid it will make them angry and rebellious against us. It will produce an angry and a rebellious spirit in them. I get this. Um, 
especially in the area of like spanking, I get that the logic tells us that if we spank our kids, it's going to lead to them thinking that we're cruel and unloving. But again, scripture promises the opposite, the very opposite. Let's see here, who's got there? Uh, Stuart, can you do uh, Proverbs 29:17? Read what God says about the opposite of producing an angry and rebellious children. Proverbs 29:17 says, "Correct your son, and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul." Right. So another other Bibles say peace. So he he will give you comfort. He will give you peace. That's a complete opposite to anger and rebellion. <clears throat> Um, Abilene, do you have yours there? Uh, look up Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Right. Again, remember we talked about uh, foolishness. If we don't discipline, we allow foolishness to remain. So... Discipline removes foolishness, but he says in 29.11, fools vent their anger. So you become a fool if, you don't go, if you're not trained not to be. So again, uh, what lack of discipline produces um, anger in a child, not, not produces anger in a child. Another one, Proverbs 12.16. Proverbs 12.16 says this, A fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person... Um, so I don't have the remainder of it. But basically, the first part of it says a fool is quick-tempered and a wise person is not. So again, God's word will always contradict. Discipline actually produces somebody that's, that's wise, that holds back, is not quick to anger, and so on and so forth. So lack of discipline actually produces quick-tempered and angry children, the very opposite of why we wouldn't do it in the first place. I love Hebrews 12:11. We read it last week, but Hebrews 12.11 says that discipline actually produces righteousness and peace in a child. Righteousness and peace. The seventh reason why we wouldn't is that we're afraid that if we do, um, especially in the area of corporal punishment, we're afraid that we're going to teach them to hit back. And I've heard this. I heard this from actually a pastor. pastor told me I, I, uh, I actually uh, won't, uh, like, you know, spank my kids because I'm afraid I'm going to teach them to hit. Proverbs 18.6 says this. Fools get, in, fools get into constant quarrels. They are asking for a beating. Fools get into constant quarrels. The people that end up being physically violent in life and end up being bullies on the playground are children that have never been disciplined correctly. And we've, we've, we've talked about the first four sermons laid out all the parameters for correct discipline. But, so this is, uh, if this is new to you, we've gone through all these things. But we talk about this, that fools get into constant quarrels from Proverbs 18.6. So again, it's the opposite. And two things are true. Like we could potentially teach our children to hit if two things are in place. One, if we're not self-sacrificially parenting, because now every time you correct, you're only doing it when you're in a, in a disciplinary state. So you have to be self-sacrificially a parenting. That'll, that'll be key to teaching them not to hit. But secondly, if, we are, if we're disciplining always in a state of a rage, so if we're angry or, or in, a, in a bad mood and we're always doing it in, in anger or violence in our own spirits, then maybe we would teach a child to hit back. But if it's done God's way, there's not a chance. 
and I say this actually with, with no joke, and you think about this yourself, all the families, and I mean all, all the families that I know that have gone God's way of parenting in this area and done it, have been self-sacrificial and done it in not a spirit of anger, aggression, when I look at their teenage kids today or in the early 20s, are all loving, gentle people. They, I don't, I, 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 they, they, who actually respect people and they're not bullies and they're not violent. So all the families that I know that have gone this model actually have children that actually would like my children to turn out like. So the very thing that they say is going to happen actually doesn't happen. But one of the reasons, and especially in early infancy, is that in early stages, this is not an issue to even worry about because of how child brains work. Right? Your brain and, I, and our brains work differently. How our brains work is this. Because we can see the big picture and we can see the cause and effects of events and have a conscience, we can work through why scenario A will lead to scenario B. A child doesn't see the big picture. It only sees the immediate gratification and doesn't understand how to process and logically work through something. So when a child is uh, two years old and he puts a fork in the light socket, he's not thinking anything about the potential effects of that. So when you discipline a child in that moment, all the child learns is this. Every time I stick a fork in a light socket, my bum hurts. I gotta stop putting that fork in the light socket. It's not going, oh, I understand the laws of electricity and all the fundamental dynamics around it and I could burn the house down and die. And it doesn't have any clue about that type of stuff, right? So again, you can, you can watch a, a little girl throw a ball across the street and dad, and, all, and she doesn't see the car coming. Doesn't see the car coming down the road, but you as a parent are outside and you see the car coming. So you yell, like, you know, Susie, stop! And you run to grab her, to make her stop, right? And she'll turn around after you save her life from running across the street, and she'll turn around and maybe say, I hate you, daddy, because you like, didn't let it go for the ball. What? Because she, all her, her whole life is focused on the ball and you wrecked my fun. She's not thinking about the, the big consequences outside of that picture. So again, you would discipline a child in that moment for saying, I hate you. And so they would learn that they can never say, I hate you. That's the key. But they have no idea about what you just did. You saved her life in a self-sacrificial, loving action. Again, so little children, they're not going to learn to hit. Because when they get, when they get um, physically punished, they're just learning that that's not how life works. And they're learning that there's a direct correlation between the, the pain and the event of what they just said or did. Okay? It's different when you're a teenager or older because you can see the big pictures. And so other discipline has to be used. It's so very important to understand that, if, how a child's brain works. Early on, and you might have experienced this already, especially when you first begin this process, your children actually, after corporal punishment, will actually reach out their arms to you to embrace you. You ever notice that? It, when, when I always thought they would run away from me, and that's why I didn't want to do it, when I, when I first started, my kids would actually turn around in tears and open their arms and go to hug me. They were the first to initiate. They want to restore their relationship. It's the most amazing thing to witness. So, I don't, if they wanted to learn to hit, you'd think they'd strike me back after. They don't. They actually reach their arms up, open them up, and want to embrace you. I mean, that's a very crazy thing to think about. Okay, this, Rochelle brought this up, and I think it's a very important one. Fear in our culture that you'll be criminally charged. Good point. 
All I can say to this is that uh, do all of your discipline in private. I know that doesn't seem like that's like a no-brainer, but do it all in private. Um, if you're in a public situation, you have to inconvenience yourself as a parent, and you have to go in the you have to go in the car, go for a drive, go to a secluded place, whatever, and deal with that. It totally inconveniences you. Yes, I get it. You do it once or twice, you'll never have to do it ever again. So, for the sake of one uh, pain in the butt, uh, little hot's a good one, eh? Uh, pain in the butt for you. Pain in the butt for you. It's going to save you tons of time and allow you to walk into public settings in a very peaceful way. You'll be able to put your kids down at the grocery store instead of sticking them in the cart because they'll be able to listen to your words as you walk around the thing. Or go in the bank lineups and not worry about a, a whole scene uh, going chaotic. Yes, they'll act out for sure in those situations, but do it once or twice in an effective way and you'll never have to deal with it again. Or if you do, it'll be very seldom. But I'd say this anyway, even if society was in agreement for doing it, so even if you like publicly were to like discipline your children, even if they were in, they were in agreement with that, I still would do it in private. And the reason is, is not to embarrass or shame your child in front of other people. Because you send different messages to the kids when you do that in front of other people. So it's always to be a private matter, whether the public or is in favor or not. That includes mom and dad, your mom and dad if they're in the house, that includes grandma and grandpa, and all sorts of things. I always do it in private. Because it's an issue between you and your child and them and God. It's nobody else's business. And this is the most crazy one, and I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon on this one. And this will be probably, I hope it's impactful to you. And uh, in, in um, and it's the idea, but you love them too much to do it. You love them too much to discipline your kids. I hope the Word of God speaks to you strongly in this one. Because um, our culture says that actually they don't discipline because they love their children. That's why they don't. But God actually says the opposite. And this is really important because this is step six and learning how to raise your kids. You have to understand clearly God's attitude towards us as parents if we don't discipline our children. We have to understand God's attitude towards us if we don't discipline our kids. Um, Pat, do you have your Bible open? or Can you read Proverbs 13, 24? He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciples with uh, disciples him Okay. He who withholds his rod, what what his son? Hates him. <laughs> hates him. Can you believe that? If you don't discipline your kid, God says in his wisdom from Proverbs, you hate your kid. I didn't make I didn't put that word in there. It says hate. I didn't put it there. Isn't that crazy? God says this, if you discipline, it's an expression of love. And we, our culture says, if you do it, it's an expression of dislove for your child. That that's, to me, an incredible thing. And we actually have a passage in Scripture in 1 Samuel that speaks of this very, this very thing. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 12. We're going to read this. I'll read this to you out loud. 1 Samuel, I'll give you a minute. 1 Samuel chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 12. 
Okay, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with the meat while it was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did, not, they did it in Silo to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take the boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Here's the key in verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked. Right? They're wicked men. They're worthless men. The reason being, he describes it here. If you look at the Levitical law, these priests, they were acting as priests in, in Israel. Because Eli was the head priest and these guys were in priests behind him. And the Levites um, was Levites. And here they are sinning against God by not obeying Leviticus, basically. There's a, there was laws for priests and how to do the sacrifice and they were disobeying them. So then God says, uh, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for he despised the way they're doing the offering. Here's, now we move to verse 22 of the same chapter. 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. So here they are, they're sexually promiscuous. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. And then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to carry an ephod before me? And did I, and did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? By making yourselves fat with the choices of everything, my people of Israel. See the key verses in there? Verse 25, they would not listen to the voice of their father. And then God says through the prophet, you have honored your sons above me. And the slam dunk verse now is in chapter 3, verse 11 to tie this all together. Look at 3.11. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Here is the charge against Eli from God. You knew about all the disobedience in their lives from the beginning to the end, the way they handled the sacrifices to the way they, uh, they responded with the women at the tent meeting. They're basically immoral people from left to right to center. And his rebuke against Eli was as you did nothing. You watched them under your roof and did nothing. 
And God said, I'm done with you. And guess what happens? They all die. <laughs> They're all dead. If you go through the book of Samuel, God takes every one of them out. Physically. Gone. Snuffed out. Priests of Israel, for goodness sake. Like, that's, the, that's, the, that's me. Like, that's the pastor of your church. And God kills me because I won't, I won't um, come under discipline. God's charge was this. Listen, guys. My, you need to discipline. Eli, if you had done this and they still sinned, you'd be okay. But you didn't. And you honored your, you honored your children above honoring me. Proverbs 13 says, discipline your child or you'll hate him. You, it's a sign of love if you do. If we don't do this, church, we are honoring our children above the Lord. And I know our children aren't doing this like what Eli's sons are doing, but we're, you know, little things started early become big things in adulthood. So God's, understanding God's attitude towards us if we don't discipline our children is, for me, the number one motivating factor for why I do what I do. I've got three or four Proverbs that I hang my hat off of on how to raise my children, but the number one thing when I go to, when I, when I do this, I'm like, I do not want to do this. I don't want to follow through. I want to give all the excuses in the world, but I'm honoring my children above God if I don't. Isn't that a powerful motivating factor? <laughs> it is for me. I hope it is for you. And there's another passage we have to look at. Matthew 10, 36 to 38. If you, this is the people come to him and want to be Jesus' disciples. And he says this, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or your daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your own cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. These are Jesus' words. In other words, if you, if, you do, if you fear man more than God, you can't be my disciple. Again, we are to honor God and to be his disciple. We are to love him more than our children. The way we do that is to obey God's commands for how we raise our children. And Eli is a powerful example of this. I will uh, finish with one. I think I'll, I'd like to do this uh, just to make it in my head um, flow better for next week. I want to now move to step seven of disciplining our kids and raising our kids. And it falls perfectly with this segue uh, with what we just talked about. Because the seventh step is understanding that there's a time sensitivity with regards to children, or to discipline. There's a time sensitivity. Uh, Sarah, can you read uh, Proverbs 19, 18? Sure. Yeah. Son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. Okay, you're chasing your son or disciplining your son while there's still hope. That suggests that there's a time when there will be no hope left, right? Um, I like the way, uh, well, yeah, mine says discipline your son while there's still hope, so it's still the same word. But again, and do not desire his death. So there's a time then, sensitivity, in which we can produce the most fruit in our children's lives. Now, I don't want to scare anybody, because I will say this, God's grace can overcome anything. <laughs> How many of us as adults have like, had some major things to deal with in our lives where we've noticed huge healing uh, that have come, say, from our, from our backgrounds? 
So again, like grace can, can, can heal and fix anything that's wrong in our lives. But again, it's great if we could raise children which they come into adulthood with as little issues to deal with as possible. That's, our, that's what we try to do as parents. So again, don't think that your children are too far gone if, if things are a little bit sideways. Um, again, we can, there's huge changes can be made. But still, the principle is there that, that there's a time sensitivity with regards to discipline. I would suggest, because the Bible doesn't tell us what age that is, I would suggest that the foolishness is not removed by the age of puberty, it's too late. And I would suggest earlier, um, children, especially girls, are into puberty like you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. You want to have the majority of your parenting done by the age of 9, <laughs> 9 10. Um, and there's a reason why, physiologically, again, this is extra biblical study, but if you research it, three chemicals drop into your brain at puberty. God gives us three chemicals that drop into the brain at puberty. And what happens is kids move now from being under the age of directives, from because from, at the age of directives, you tell them how life works. At puberty, though, they start to get the chemicals, and then they start to make decisions for themselves, and they come against you in terms of, like, who's smarter than the other. <laughs> and um, that's basically the, the battle you're going to have in a lot of ways. Um, so God gives them those chemicals, though, so they move from being under directives to decision makers. Because you don't want your child at 18 to be saying, Dad, can I go to the bathroom, and can I wear these clothes when I go out? God wants everybody to have their own, they want these children to become adults. So they move from under your, decision, under your directives to being decision makers, and that happens around puberty because God gives them the chemicals to reason and see the big picture. That's why a teenager now when goes running across the street can figure out whether a car's coming or not. They've got the chemicals to reason and work these things through. So if we remain, allow foolishness to remain in our children's lives up to this point, before they get the chemicals, when the child gets older, they're, they're like, they're, their brains are like cement. They've, life works from how they've been raised up to this point. So when they get the chemicals, they start to make decisions. They make decisions based on what it was like up, from birth up until about eight, nine years old. So the problem then is we get into teenage years and we have all this strain against our kids because they've been allowed to remain foolish. So now when mom and dad try to invest in them and make this, uh, make, help them make wise choices, it's met with tremendous resistance. And, and all that happens is disrespect and contempt because the child has learned very early on that they're smarter than you and they know what is right. Then proof for the child is you let me get my way all the time with things that I want to do, even though you tell me not to do them. But you let me get away with them, so I must be smarter. And then the child rules the house. And then once they leave home, as adults, they will continue to make patternistic, foolish decisions that will affect all the relationships. Okay, so again, we want to, we want to listen to, and heed to the Proverbs principle that there's a time sensitivity and we want to get most of it done. And if you get it done in the early years, it'll help tremendously with working through issues when they're in their teenage years. Now, Stuart can attest to this. Stuart can attest to this like crazy. Um, I have, we train 80% women in a gym. I think, I have never, and I mean never, heard a woman in my gym say this to me. Um, well, actually, they say this all the time. You're so lucky you have boys. And I'm like, why? And they say, because if you had teenage girls, you're in for like a lot of basically hell. And I'm like, and it's because, and I already know the problem. 
mom has had no control over the, the girls their whole lives. And so when they become teenagers, it's like that they, they, they're raised with disrespect and have contempt against their moms. And so it's a fighting relationship through the whole teenage years. But you know, if I were to ask you to name names, you could. Do you know some girls that are teenagers that get along really well with their moms? I know lots. But they've all been raised in a way in which they've been disciplined and, and there's been, uh, um, there's been like, God's principles have been invested in the family. I know tons of girls that get along with their moms and have great relationships. But these women are saying, oh, you're so lucky you don't have girls. But, and then when they even, but even some of them will say to me, well, even though you have boys, they'll still say, oh, you're in for a rude awakening when they're teenagers. You know what? I could be because you know, I, can't, I can't predict the future. But I doubt it. Will I have issues? Absolutely. Will I have all three boys in full rebellion against mom and dad? I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. Again, I can't promise that, but I doubt it. Again, because we're trying to, we're teaching them that life works on other people's terms, and it works on God's terms, and on mom and dad's terms. It doesn't work on their terms, and we're trying to remove selfishness from them early on. And I'll just say this, and a lot of everyone of parents here knows this, but for those of you who don't have kids, foolishness starts early. It starts from the day they can wiggle on the change table before the age of language. Got a crappy diaper, and you guys can all imagine those big ones. That looks like, oh, anyway, never mind. Uh, and uh, they're on the crib, and they've never moved before because they're four months old, and now they're six months old, and they go to squirm and squirm, and next thing you know, the little, something hits the fan, <laughs> and everything's everywhere. And it's like, and you just like, no, 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 no. And the kid's like, just like loving it, like a pig in mud. And again, they start early, resisting, stiffening up in the crib with diaper, or on, before the age of language, on their back, before the age of walking, and they, they stiffen up and they resist you right at six months old. Foolishness starts early. Sleep training. Before the age of language, they start telling you how life's going to work with sleeping. They cry through the night, uh, will scream, and you pick them up, completely stops, and they're fed and they're changed. Put them down, they cry, and they're saying, life works on my terms now. And again, and I know, I know of a kid that even, has even thrown up, thrown up to, uh, to try to get their way in terms of like, um, like they would put down for sleep training. And so they would throw up in their crib as a way of manipulation to get their parents to come back in. That's how far they've taken it. So again, it, it can go from screaming, kicking, kicking the crib, uh, throwing up. I mean, just all sorts of manipulation tactics to get mom and dad to come and rescue them. If we don't get these things dealt with even in the six month, one year stage, you're, we set ourselves up for more work. Because whatever juncture point we accommodate the child within the sleep pattern, that's where the child will start from in terms of its obedience to you. So if you deal with these issues early on, at six months old, you can, you can make a difference in your child's life in terms of respect and authority. And you're telling your child as an adult at that age even subconsciously and consciously because it can't speak, uh, you're telling the kid that you know better and that you can't be manipulated out of it. So again, foolishness starts at six months old. And uh, again, those of you who don't have children, when you go through this stage, because you will, uh, you can come and talk to us parents who've gone through it, but hopefully you won't even need to because you know what God's Word 
has in store for you in terms of how to deal with those things early on. Let's have a time of discussion because I think that's enough for today. And I'll finish off some more of this uh, part five next week. And uh, it'll be interesting to hear your comments.